Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, my friend and colleague, Ben and Ben Palablu, who's a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. Benham, let's get into it. Let's do it. Pleasure to be with you, Bill. Always a pleasure. Yeah, Benham is my Friday co-host. Moving forward, we got a lot of things planned for you in the upcoming year. Benham, I hope you and yours had a wonderful holiday season and have a great new year. That goes to all our listeners as well. Likewise. Thank you so much. Looking forward to Freaky Fridays in 2024. Yep. <laughs> And I got a case of the Fridays, that's for sure. You know, Benham, we always seem to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, That's the nature of these wars. Uh, But today we have a small bit of holiday cheer to spread here. Well, for Generation Jihad, at least. Over at Foreign Policy, Generation Jihad received a favorable review. I'll just read a quick excerpt of it. Listeners, you should go on over and give it a read. Many thanks to Lynn O'Donnell for her kind words about Generation Jihad. And here's the second paragraph of the review. From Al-Shabaab to Al-Qaeda, from West Africa to Southeast Asia, former U.S. Army soldier Raggio, along with colleagues and guests who have included retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel H.R. McMaster, who served briefly as former U.S. President Donald Trump's National Security Advisor, examines the implications of policies, military operations, and minutia that may not warrant mention in mainstream media, such as jailbreaks and leadership squabbles, but that add context for understanding and demystifying the overarching conflict of our time. Since October 7th, the podcast focus has been on the Israel-Hamas war. And then Lynn says, Raggio brings gruff charm to deadly serious stuff. I, uh, I must admit, I did especially like the gruff charm description. I could see you liking that. Yeah, my wife and daughter um, also approved. They, they read that. They said that that fits me well. So, so Lynn, you nailed it. But thank you. You know, look, I read that paragraph because that's what I hope Generation Jihad can be. And that's what all of those who contributed, you know, my name gets mentioned in there, but there's many who deserve credit for what I believe to be the success of this podcast. I'm just going to briefly mention Phil Hegseth. He's our first producer who pushed Tom Jocelyn and I to start this podcast. He hounded us relentlessly for a year to get it off the ground. And it was tough to do because we were really busy with what was going on in Afghanistan and through the wider war. And it's hard to start projects like this. Tom and I really wanted to do it. But, you know, sometimes just pulling the trigger and then getting into a rhythm. Phil made that happen. Danielle took over the reins from Phil about midway and she pushed us forward. Danielle's our producer. Caleb Weiss, he's been an invaluable contributor, co-host, and just an all-around influence on the podcast. Joe and, of course, Benham been guests and then stepped in as co-hosts as we produce more episodes in the wake of the deadly attack on Israel. And, of course, we are grateful for FDD's support for Generation Jihad, which has been unwavering. Anyway, there's my Oscar speech. Uh, I guess it's uh, it'll be time for me to settle back into my uh, gruff charm and move on to the grim realities of this war. Benham, there's three things we're going to discuss today. Israel killed an Iranian general in Syria, U.S. counterstrikes against Hezbollah brigades in Iraq, and the Iraqi response, which has not been very positive, and then Operation Prosperity Guardian, the defensive coalition that we've learned is a defensive coalition to uh, try to prevent the Houthis from sinking warships. Big mistake, and we'll get into that more. So let's start. Last week, or last weekend, Israel killed, his name is Razi Mousavi. 
He's been described as a, an important Iranian advisor. I believe he's an actual general in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. He's been, from what I can tell, the third IRGC, or that's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps asset, who's been killed by the Israelis since October 7th. And Benham, just as we started, you had mentioned there's, there may be some new news on this front, not confirmed at the moment, but tell us about that and then tell us about Musavi. Sure. Um, well, in essence, there's a story breaking as we speak now um, from Al Arabiya's uh, Al Hadath Saudi owned media station about another strike uh, in Syria uh, in and around the Damascus airport. Uh, allegedly Israel, but no uh, overt responsibility taken. Also, no independent confirmation of this strike. Uh, but allegedly, 11 IRGC commanders uh, were, were killed in the strike. Again, we don't know the names. We don't even know the rank. Sometimes the word, be it in English or in Arabic, uh, of the word commander or rank of commander, I should say, is thrown around uh, very, very, very loosely. Uh, so we don't know uh, if this strike happened yet or if this alleged rank of commander is true. Uh, but if anything even related to this is true, it could be a potential uptick uh, in Israeli interest and Iranian interest in the Syrian theater. We've seen that one be relatively the quietest uh, since the uh, October 7 terror attack and the Israeli response against Hamas. Uh, but also, of course, the fact that, you know, historically, if you zoom out, there have been more Israeli strikes in Syria than in any other location as part of this war between the wars or campaign between the wars. The mowing of the grass analogy actually fits just as easily to Syria as it does to Gaza. Uh, and that's because Syria is this connective linchpin for Iran's regional strategy, taking uh, essentially Persian Mesopotamia and moving it into the Levant. Uh, so it allows the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to project power into the Eastern Mediterranean. It's this critical land bridge for men, money, and munitions across most of Middle, of Yields, Middle East battlefields places that you and Tom and others have covered under the auspices of the long war for many years. Uh, and so it should be no surprise to anyone that there are still tons of IRGC folks operating in and around Syria. Uh, the goal is to keep Assad stable, but also uh, to continue to allow Syria to be a staging ground for weapons being transferred to Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon. And that is one of the things uh, that uh, reports some following, some predating the death of the killing of Razi Musavi, uh, who allegedly the Israelis had tried to take out several times before and had uh, failed or had been unable to do so, uh, was all about. Uh, his presence uh, in Syria was reportedly tied to uh, cementing or deepening the military ties between Iran and Syria, and in particular the military ties between the Assad regime and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Iran. Uh, there are quotes about Soleimani, perhaps apocryphally attributed to him, saying that Razi Musavi would be, would be martyred in Syria, um, allegedly. You know, he is someone who has a, a war service during the Iran-Iraq war, so he's a veteran like most of the uh, military elite uh, in Iran today. These war networks help, end up helping form bonds and networks. These bonds and networks were actually instrumental for Soleimani's rise in Iran and also the success of Soleimani's strategy out of Iran, um, particularly in places like Iraq and Syria. And uh, Razi Musavi reportedly, again, uh, was involved in the transfer and the creation of this PGM project, the surface-to-surface -surface missile transfer project that first ended up transferring whole systems and later on uh, key component parts uh, of, of systems to turn dumb rockets into smart missiles or just unguided munitions into guided or precision-guided munitions. Uh, so there's allegations about that critical role as well. But consider this person part of another cog in the machine of of uh, Iran's regional network. I don't think it'll permanently handicap the regional network, but it is forcing the regional network to continue to operate under fire. 
Uh, and again, this is the normal Israeli uh, MO here. You know, the idea of eradicating a terrorist group is more in the American model of counterterrorism than the Israeli or Middle Eastern model. Uh, you know, the Israeli model is consistently understanding that the adversary has an ideological mission, would put even its most limited resources towards the end of that ideological mission, and about managing and thwarting and setting back that ideological mission as much as possible. So the taking out of top military echelons or of mid-level folks uh, like uh, Razi Musavi, and even if you go back to things long where general covered, I think it was uh, an IRGC personnel first killed in the Golan, I think in 2013 or 2014. Uh, Adla Dadi was his last name, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Uh, he yes. was he he was killed in a helicopter gunship attack. Long War Journal covered that in the Golan Heights. I think you know about a decade ago. And these are the people who help uh, move things. They they create facts on the ground for the Iranian network, and then the Israeli eroding or pushing back of these facts on the ground. I don't think it's tied to the tit for tat of the Iranian drone strikes on Israeli ships. I think it's tied to the larger kind of existential Israeli understanding of the adversary is trying to use the geography around me, and I need to handicap him as much as possible in this geography. Yeah, that's you know, and look, this in in many ways, you know, one of the things I've learned over the I guess two decades now that which is frightening of tracking U.S. targeting of primarily like Al Qaeda's network in Pakistan to begin with as well as in Afghanistan, you know, it is even what we learned was that was a form of mowing the grass even then, because look, Al Qaeda, the state department described us as having a deep bench. So these attacks while killing key operatives never caused the collapse of Al Qaeda, which has far fewer resources than a country like Iran. So while I've always described these, these the targeting of key leaders and make no mistake, someone like Masavi is a, a key leader and does need to be eliminated. It's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient to lead to the, the Iranians are not going to be defeated. They're, they're over by killing of Mosavi or even look Soleimani. People were saying this would, you know, not, not serious people in my estimation, and I'm not certainly not you and I, but we're saying, you know, the killing of Soleimani was a major groundbreaking event that would impact Iran's operations. He was the linchpin and they can't replace his leadership and his connections. And yet Iran has soldiered on since his death. And, you know, we're now, what is it? Four years now? We're, we're, we're about to come up on four years. Four years, yeah. Yeah, the math gets me. I can't remember. Was that January 2020 or was it? Anyway. Um, 3rd, 2020. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And It was another Christmas surprise. <laughs> in the run-up to it, there was escalation in Iraq that derailed Christmas holiday and planning and the attack on the embassy and the KH strike that killed an American service person all the way up to January, I think, 8th when the Iranians responded with those missile strikes. It was just a blur. 2020 began with a bang. That, that was crazy. I mean, you know, again, um, I always say, you know, not only are the terrorists evil, but they're inconsiderate. And sometimes our governments are as well. You know, I really wish they would have given us notification about that strike. <laughs> so I could have planned my Christmas and New Year's holidays accordingly, because boy, do they throw things up in the uh, in the air for us when it happens. And, you know, um, Abu Mario Mahantas, who was the basically the I would call him. Soleimani's right-hand man when it came to the militias in Iraq, a key drive. He was killed in that strike that killed Soleimani. The militias are stronger today than they were in January 2020 when, when both were killed. Key important leaders need to be taken off the battlefield, necessary but not sufficient. And that isn't a, re isn't a reason to, st to stop targeting. They have to continue. I'd argue you have to target them harder. And, you know, something you had mentioned, Benham, the, um, about Syria, right? It's a it's an attack zone for the Israelis. The Israelis can 
launch attacks in the Syria because Syria is essentially a lawless free free fire zone. Every, it's a playground for every, the Russians are there, the Americans are there, the Turks are there, Al Qaeda is there, the Islamic State's there, Iraqi and, and militias are there, the Iranians are there, the Israelis are operating. So everyone could kind of do what they want, but for the Iranians, you know, uh, and for you know, and for Hezbollah, the Syria's been more of a support zone for them, and I, I do find that interesting, and that's because the main push, um, in my opinion, is is into pushing support into southern Lebanon, but that can change. And, you know, if if it becomes an attack zone along the Golan, which we have had some some sporadic strikes, that can really increase the problems for the Israelis opening up. I mean, it's it's essentially along the same front in the northern border of Israel, but it's been a largely inactive one. And the, the Israelis got enough problems uh, right now, waiting for the West Bank to blow up, waiting for Hezbollah to, to really light into um, attacks in the north, whether that does, but that's siphoning resources and energy away from the operation in Gaza. So um, it's 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 a very interesting dynamic. But the, the the Israelis need to they need to continue to put the pressure on the IRGC and and make them the Iranians and make them pay a price for. And this could be one way of doing it. Uh, you know, with the the story of the explosions in Yemen and Iraq and Syria and allegedly even in Iran, that maybe the Israelis are trying to signal to the acts of resistance. You may be firing more at us. But don't think you're going to go us into a multi-front war and don't think there won't be multi-front costs associated with it. So the things that go boom in the night in Damascus and Sana'a, um, there's just a few of them so far. Or perhaps the Israelis are signaling that you thought there could be none, but here we're proving that there are some. So uh, this is one way I think they're trying to keep the axis at bay without having to uh, play into the axis of strategy, which is to fight a multi-front war all at once. Yeah, and the Israelis have a history of, of this and, and making some significant kills, right? Imad Mukniya in that was Lebanon, right? Or was it I think, Syria? I think it was he was in Syria two thousand eight. Syria, yeah, Syria or Lebanon so. two thousand eight. And and then of course, I mean, obviously it was Al Qaeda, but uh, you know, one um Abu Muhammad al Hamasri was killed in in Tehran and in, in which was basically an Israeli set up assassination. So the twenty twenty the the, yep. the Al Qaeda guy? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So well, you know uh, now obviously there's been other events and we've described them, but you know, those are high profile people. It has to give pause to key leaders. And and was it uh, I believe it was Israel's defense minister, I wasn't thinking about manage, mentioning this or I would have the information in front of me, but who said that Israel is um fighting back, I believe he said in six of seven countries that are operating. So that that may be what you had said right there, the the booms that go in the night in Damascus and in in, in uh, Beirut and in in Baghdad and other places. This may be what we're talking about. It's it's certainly interesting messaging from the Israelis. They don't have the resources to go to fight everyone at once, but they certainly have the ability to make people pay a price that is the best use the irony here and you know benham and i don't want to go too deep into this um i think we save this for a future episode you know on, on overall strategy is the israelis have minimal minimal resources to to go after their enemies and they i think they use what they have as wisely as they can where we the united states has more resources than anyone in the world to go after its enemies and it's it practices maximal restraint. It's, uh, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit further with Prosperity Guardian and that's, and the, you know, the operation to to prevent the Houthis from sinking shipping in our warships. And it's just really frustrating to to watch a country like Israel, you know, that's fighting for its life, doing everything it can, you know, using those resources to the best of its ability while we are, you know, have abundant resources and squander them by begging for deterrence. And it's, it's also the conditions under which these resources are used. You're right. It's, it's, it's worth doing on, on a larger podcast 
but it's not just the resources and when you use it, but it's the philosophy of it, of, of yes. why why you need to expend something to protect something. Uh, and again, it's it's a it's a fundamentally different view. That that's why I see the Israeli operation here uh, against Hamas as as and I use this word not in a pejorative way, but in in a, in a way to describe the way we've fought in as you've covered in depth. Uh, the past two decades in the Middle East, the Israelis are looking for solutions when historically they've been very good at management. And the reason the Israelis have been good at management recently is that in the past, when they've looked at solutions, uh, like the 82 invasion uh, of Lebanon, for instance, uh, they end up getting a larger crisis. Uh, so that even this Israeli mentality comes and goes based on these local conditions. And and again, if you if you are a country with that capability and that kind of limited resource and are able to effectuate uh, this larger deterrence bubble like the Israelis have, the question just then becomes, well, for the U.S., who has X number more capabilities and X number more resources, why can't we kind of reestablish that deterrence bubble? And then the, the, the intervening variable there is politics, will, philosophy, conditions. Um, I can go on and on, but I think this would be a great separate, uh, separate conversation, separate podcast. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. And I think you hit the top three, um, really. To me, it's it's not about capabilities, although that is has become an issue. Um, yeah, well, let's save that. Let's table that for another day. Um, uh, very soon, actually. Let's uh, move on to the, um, the U.S. launched uh, strikes against Hezbollah brigades. That's one of the Iranian uh, proxies in militias that are in Iraq. Um, they hit Hezbollah Brigade's three locations earlier this week after they targeted U.S. forces in, I believe it was in Erbil, at an airbase in Erbil. Um, Iraq's prime minister came out and condemned those um, the militia attacks, and he has done that. That is uh, Prime Minister Mohammad Shia al-Sudani. And yet you know, he condemned the, the militias in a paragraph and then devoted several paragraphs, this was on statements released on Twitter, that condemned the U.S. strike counterstrikes as a violation of sovereign of Iraqi sovereignty, and this occurred the same day as the strikes. Um, ironically, he said that the one Iraqi soldier was killed and Iraqi bases were targeted. When Hezbollah brigades came out and said one of its fighters were killed and Hezbollah brigade bases were fighting. Now, keep in mind these aren't these things aren't um, they can both be right because Hezbollah brigades is technically part of Iraq security forces. The, it is part of what's known as the Popular Mobilization Forces, which was uh, enshrined or um, as a, an official security force in 2016 uh, by Iraq's uh, then prime minister. And it, this, they report directly to Iraq's prime minister. So, um, But the, the irony here is, is that Prime Minister uh, Sudani, while he condemns the Attacks by the by Hezbollah brigades and other units within the popular mobilization forces on the U.S. Um, he has no power to stop them, Be, they, because while they nominally report to him or technically report to him, they don't obey his orders. And then two days later, Sudani came out, and this was during a um, with a, a a visit from Spain's prime minister, and he said, um, "It's time for U.S. troops to leave. Iraqi forces are trained, well trained. We're good." Um, U.S. forces are there, of course, to help the Iraqi security forces fight the Islamic State, to train them and help maintain the equipment and whatnot. So, Benham, what does uh, what does this story tell us? Who has the upper hand in Iraq? You know, when you look at what U.S. is taking attacks from essentially what are Iraqi security forces that are Iranian backed, Prime Minister de- um, denounces U.S. counterstrikes, does nothing to prevent these attacks, and then he ultimately comes out and says it's time for the U.S. to leave uh, Iraq. Who's winning in Iraq? In Iraq, is it the U.S.? Is it is it Iran? Uh, like you just said, it, it, it is Iran, but that 
that Iranian victory is midwifed by a whole host of local actors the Iranians have uh, in Iraq, uh, like a block in the parliament called the Fatah coalition, uh, like tons of elements of the uh, uh, popular mobilization units or popular mobilization forces, which are formally also part of Iran's axis of resistance, that coalition of uh, terror and proxy militia groups they've created or co-opted. Uh, you have, of course, uh, the partners of Iran, of the IRGC in the business world, and the puncturing of the cultural and religious and most importantly, economic institutions of Iraq. I mean, just to a degree, Iran is using Iraq uh, as a, a, a more than a buffer, but as a proxy state as well. We talk about Iran's proxy strategy from bottom up, but you know, the longer you take a view of post-2003 Iraq, and the longer you see the U.S. trying to stabilize and build effective central government there, the more you see first the Iranians move from trying to defeat the U.S. strategy there to permit the U.S. to have a semblance of stability there such that the Iranians would come and puncture it just as they're doing. And here they're using formal government institutions. You get the Iraqi prime minister. The Iranians didn't call the Iraqi prime minister and say, tell him to do this. The conditions created around the Iraqi prime minister forced him to do this. Political, social, economic, military. Um, just like the conditions in 2020 with the parliament, perhaps less relevant to the to the actual move to get the U.S. to leave the country, also led to a resolution in 2020 after the killing of Soleimani uh, to evict the U.S. And this is Iran's larger play here, to beget a cycle of violence, just like the October 7 world, use military means to achieve a political end, start a cycle of violence that somehow ends up legally and politically circumscribing the U.S.'s room for maneuver in the region, uh, one goal of which is to get the U.S. out of Iraq so that that full-time domination and proxy strategy of Iran and Iraq can become more complete than ever before. Um, and this is something I actually do fear uh, because this is where the administration does harbor a similar understanding of what Iran's goal in Iraq is. But to that degree, they will say, aha, because there is politics in Iraq, because these conditions are sensitive, therefore, we cannot do the things that we just did very limitedly. And if we do, then we may have to do them in an even more limited fashion. Uh, and this is something that I think the Brett McGurks of the world, uh, the people who, again, are comfortable treating Syria as the free fire zone, but Iraq as the restraint zone, uh, will be the first to point out that there is politics. It creates these problems. We can't afford to, uh, you know, shake this uh, hornet's nest any further. Uh, and I think moving into 2024, we will continue to have unclear conditions under when the U.S. can use force against the Iraqis and, and by default, uh, their Iranian kind of paymasters. Uh, and so long as this kind of murkiness continues, uh, the Iranians will be the net victor in, in any case. Are strikes happening or are strikes not happening? So two two quick things. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. This is, and, and that's an excellent description. And um, you know, look, I describe Iraq as a, as an Iranian satrapy at this point. Um, it's it, or, or or it's it's almost there. Uh, you know, you're you're correct. They're not the the prime minister isn't receiving direct orders, but the Iranians are dictating the political and military outcomes inside of Iraq. Um, and as far as McGurk goes, you know, he's one of the ones who's responsible for getting Iran to this point in Iraq. Keep in mind that this is one of the things, one of the more, the things that, and there's a lot that's bothered me in covering this war for 20 years. But when the Iraqi government went on the counteroffensive against the Islamic State, the popular mobilization forces, which as we've just discussed is, you know, dominated by the, the militias, Hezbollah brigades, Asiba Haq, uh, you know, we can go on and on, Iman Ali brigades, things of like that. These are all Iranian proxies. 
very dangerous terrorist organizations responsible for killing hundreds of American troops. They, they were formed because the Iraqi army was collapsing and the um, Islamic State was pressing on Baghdad from the north and actually from the south and the west as well. So these militias went on the offensive and the U.S. was providing air support for these militias as they were marching against the Islamic State. And the U.S. military commanders were calling them Iraqi security forces and faking them for, for their actions, even as places like Human Rights Watch were issuing reports about how once these militias were entering cities and towns, were ethnically cleansing them, rounding up all the Sunni military-age males and executing them and whatnot. You know, um, I just, you know, this the McGurkian... Iraqi strategy, um, which he's also responsible for doing things like supporting the the um, the PKK or the Turkestan um, workers' parties and rebranding them as the ironically, you know, a Marxist terrorist organization that is a foreign or listed as an actual foreign terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department and rebranding them as the the Syrian Democratic Forces or Front or whatever, and U.S. soldiers wearing PKK patches on their shoulders um, while operating next to them. This is what you get when you get muddled policies, when you get when you don't understand who your friends or your enemies are, and you can't even understand what uh, what a terrorist looks like. The end result is Iranian predominance in Iraq. In Iraq. And, and often in, in Syria, with their goal of keeping Assad and Russia's goal of keeping Assad and, and, and our initial older goal of Assad Moscow. I mean, let, let's not forget that was, that is a major victory for this network. And again, this this I don't want to get too down down the rabbit hole because I think we see Iraq the same way here. But on this point, this could also be worth a separate podcast. But on on strategy, right? Like, who do we define as as a terrorist for the foreign terrorist organizations list? The list doesn't come out of thin air. And you're absolutely right about the inability to distinguish between friends and foes. And sometimes it is wise for the U.S. to have a murky strategy. And sometimes it is wise for the U.S. to have to liaise with people uh, it finds reprehensible. Um, but the consistent inconsistency of that uh, is also part of the story of how we got to where we are. Again, providing air support in Jolfa Sakhar 2014-2015 to these militias. Uh, this uh, Later on, uh, embedding in, in northern and eastern Syria. Uh, with PKK, Kurdistan Workers' Party patches rebranded as SDF, uh, the drama that causes with NATO ally Turkey, uh, then the pulling back, the rolling the support for Baghdad when the Kurds in the northern Iraq tried to go for a referendum, an independence referendum there, and just washing these militias that previously received air cover uh, support Baghdad, slaughtering uh, of, of folks in the north uh, in Iraq there. There is a consistent inconsistency here, which raises the question of what is our role? Are we legalistic watchers on the sidelines just documenting who meets the definition of a terrorist and applying the label? Or do we intend to use a clear, coherent definition of a foreign terrorist organization or a state sponsor of terrorism to achieve an end? Is it just the stigma or are we planning to use this to achieve an end in places like Iraq, Iran, Syria, or globally? Uh, when you consider, I think it was the Trump administration that redesignated uh, North Korea as a state sponsor of terrorism. So there is supposed to be a purpose to these listings and, and designations. There's supposed to be a stigma. And if the U.S. wears down that stigma with this kind of footsie, well, then obviously, uh, if we are gray, not just about our strategies, but gray about our intentions, 
and gray about our motivations and gray about what kind of outcomes we can afford to live with versus what we can't live with, then the Iranians will come back at you with black and white about their intentions, black and white about their motivations, and black and white about what they need to survive. Uh, and in essence, you're seeing that black and white divide right across the And then, Benham, you get things like polls that Generation Z, I guess they're calling them, the kids between or adults between 18 and 29 percent uh, or 29 years old, uh, about uh, almost 20 percent of them think that Osama bin Laden is a OK. I mean, of course, we're sending mixed mis- mixed messages out there and people don't understand what we're I mean. There's other problems related to this. But um, yes, um, and that's for another day as well. Real quick, Benham, we'll, we'll uh, discuss, quickly discuss the Houthis and then, and then we'll move on to our New Year's celebrations. Um, I'm planning on starting this evening. Um, that gives me a good two days of uh, and a good hard drinking ahead of me, I can think. Um, <laughs> how about you, Benham? You in? Uh, I'd love to be in. Uh, I have some family time, uh, then doing uh, some low-key celebrating on New Year's Eve. Loki um, celebrating but, on New Year's Eve is fine too. Um, so there we have uh, the Houthi attacks that continued. Uh, another attack yesterday with, a, I believe, it was an anti-ship uh, ballistic missile and a drone that the beleaguered uh, USS Mason. You guys are you guys. I'm, it, that's not a, a slight on you guys. You're you're we're fighting a hard fight and putting a tough position. Um, USS Mason has been on the front lines of this war in the in the Red Sea, and it is a war. Um, we learned that opera last week. Operation Prosperity Guardian is defensive in nature. Um, that means that they're basically providing escort to ships. They'll prevent hijackings. They'll shoot down missiles. But there is nothing within Prosperity Guardian to accredit the assets used by the Houthis, the, the ballistic and cruise missiles, the helicopters used aboard ships, the, the drones going after Houthi military and political leadership, or dare we say, go after Iranian assets like the spy boat that's moving around in the Red Sea that's providing intelligence. Um, you know, in my estimation, Prosperity Guardian, that was a disaster to begin with, um, uh, that we couldn't muster 100 countries to get on board with this coalition and a couple to provide meaningful um, uh, resources to 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 um go after the Houthi offensive capabilities and to escort these ships is just a, a disgrace. Uh, what's your take on Prosperity Guardian? I guess we're almost two weeks in. You know, we're almost two weeks in. There, there is a lot of history being made for the U.S., you know, first and second time interceptions of anti-ship ballistic missiles at sea during, quote-unquote, a period of combat. The U.S. has done that successfully with the destroyers that are part of this mission. Uh, allegedly, these capabilities would have been there as part of Task Force 153 anyway, but as part of this larger kind of multinational coalition, which, as we've alluded to earlier on this podcast, has had some drama first with the French, now with the Spanish. Uh, and then, of course, the drama of not having all of its regional partners in there is something that the Iranians are somewhat smiling at. And in fact, when you add on stories of the fact that the Saudis don't want a harsh kinetic response against the Houthis for fears of activating the war that is still in ceasefire mode on the on the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, uh, then the Iranians feel again uh, like there is success, success by using limited military means to achieve some kind of political end state. And the political end state is the constant kind of uh, pulling away of America from its regional partners and getting America uh, to pull punches in the region more than ever before. So if, if we have an instance where there's between 40 to 50 attacks at sea, over 70 aerial attacks uh, crossing the Red Sea from the, the Houthis, uh, counting individual projectiles, I mean, from the Houthis uh, towards Israel, again, since October 19th, 
and you've had no direct uh, U.S. kinetic response, the question is, well, under what conditions would there have to be a direct kinetic U.S. response? Uh, if a ship is hit, if a U.S. sailor or service person is hit, um, if the damage of a hit ship exceeds a certain cost value, or if the damage uh, at a port city in Israel, like Eilat, for instance, exceeds a certain cost value or doesn't force any kind of relocation or population moving or, uh, you know, pulling more air defense assets towards uh, the southern part of Israel than ever before. It's, an, it's a Rubik's cube. Uh, and thus far, you're, you're absolutely right to call the nature of the coalition defensive, which means that moving into 2024, Iran and the Houthis are going to try to test exactly how defensive uh, this will be. Can you get towards it with personnel? Is it best to do standoff weaponry? Uh, what kind of vessel should they be striking at? And the fact that all of this naval and maritime targeting is brought to you by a ship that has been there, this Iranian alleged spy tanker ship that has been there for you know at least half a decade, if not longer, uh, permitted to operate and still standing and still not sunk, uh, that tells the Iranians all you need to know, that you can have a floating command and control center near a major international maritime security coalition built off the back of an existing uh, U.S. Uh, uh, force, uh, a U.S. force deployment in the Red Sea, uh, and still and still nothing. Yeah, you know, and you talk about asymmetric warfare, um, million dollar missiles being used to shoot down thousand dollar drones. That's, um, that's the strategy, you know. It's, it's brilliant. Uh, the, the, the Iranians have been bragging about this for many years now, but, you know, more overtly since the last Gaza War, 2021, I'll never forget there was a headline, whether the Israelis intercept or not, they lose. Uh, and you you apply this to the weapons that the U.S. has sold the GCC, the weapons that the U.S. has in the region uh, due to uh, the number of its service persons and its own bases there versus the cost of Iran's land attack, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, rockets, mortars, drones, IRAMs, and you name it. Uh, I mean, I still think I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the long-term prospects. You know, uh, the adversary's threats allow us opportunities to continue to innovate. Uh, I, for one, uh, would welcome something like the Iron Beam, you know, in Israel being multiplied and, you know, shared uh, more widely, as well as, of course, the drones that we could put on, the, the, the lasers that we could put on Aegis destroyers here. We just have to make that stuff cost-effective and get around things like radar and weather. Uh, but other than that, until we get there, the financial incentive uh, is going to be on the Iranian side. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll end it with this. You know, the, I think what we've seen over the last uh, several months, with, particularly with the inaction, in, inaction um, in the Red Sea against the Houthis and against the Iranians, we've elevated a second-rate militia like, known as the Houthis into a regional power. And the Iranians, you know, a... a uh, a, a power in the Middle East is now a, a regional power as well. It's it's pretty depressing. I I don't share your optimism in the long term. We don't seem to learn lessons from these wars, but I, you know, do hope we perhaps just optimism in the tech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, the ability to do it is there. I don't. What I don't see is the desire. Um, you know, look at Ukraine with the. We know we've been short on production artillery shells and other key equipment, and yet we won't ramp it up. And and that just, you know, begets a lack of seriousness that we're going to talk about in that strategy podcast, um, a lack of will. Um, but yeah, let's let's end it there, Benham. Uh, we got a lot to talk about this upcoming year, and I greatly look forward to doing it with you every Friday. Likewise. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege doing this with you in 2023, covering a lot of hot spots and a lot of hot issues and moving targets. And um for better or worse, we'll have more to cover in 2024. 
Yeah, you know, one sad thing with our work, uh, sadly, the business is always booming. That is the nature of what we do. And because our enemies, they, they smell weakness and they keep coming at us. Benham, really, the pleasure is all mine to have you co-hosting with me on Fridays. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can listen to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to Generation Jihad and leave us a review. Preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again. We'll see you all again real soon. And a happy and prosperous new year to you and yours. <laughs>